Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. As we begin the Advent season, we're beginning a new series. If you're tracking along with us in your journals, we're on page 36 this morning. As we begin, I'm going to invite Joyce and she's going to light uh, the first candle of Advent for us, the candle of hope. Uh, In Advent, the church stands between two proclamations. The first one is that the Lord has come and the second one is come Lord Jesus. The first proclamation grounds our confidence that the second one will be answered. If you've never experienced or encountered Advent before, Advent is meant to shape our hope of renewal of all things to come. In many ways, it's as if the entire Christian life is found in Advent, between the way things are and between the way things we wish them to be. So in this season of waiting, we begin by putting our hope in the one to come, the promised one who comes from God to bring good news of salvation, to lead us to walk in the light. So today we light this candle of hope and we remember to hopefully look for the coming of Christ. Well, this, this is your first Sunday here with us. Welcome. My name is Jason. I have the privilege of being a lead pastor here at City Collective. And we say it every week, wherever you find yourself on your journey of faith, Christian, non-Christian, atheist, agnostic, maybe you're just in church on a Sunday in December because you feel like you're supposed to be. Uh, we're really glad that you're here with us this week. We're beginning a new series called Yahal, and it is the Hebrew word for hope or to hope, to wait. In many ways, uh, we engage with the Christian experience, with the Advent idea from, from different perspectives, from different avenues. For myself, the season of Advent was not something I grew up with. It was not something I was familiar, familiar with in general. Uh, our team this past week, they put together a little podcast primer of all things Advent. Uh, Jordan, Sophie, and Neff had this conversation. And I would highly encourage checking it out on uh, whichever platform you listen to your podcast. And one of the things that Sophie mentioned in regards to Advent was it being a rehearsal for the joy of the second coming of Christ. And I love that language. I love that picture. Because what I've found for myself as I have grown more familiar with the, with the traditions and practices of Advent is that I've deeply inv- appreciated that there's an invitation of hope that sits at the center of it. Our series is titled around that Hebrew word, yahal, to be patient, to hope. And in biblical Hebrew, to hope is waiting with expectation. But the question always is, is what are we waiting for? In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, the only hope that Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. In Psalm 130, the poet cries out from a pit of despair, let Israel yahal for the Lord, hope for the Lord, because he's loyal and will redeem Israel. Our understanding of hope is often predicated on a different premise than biblical hope. Christian hope is bold. 
And it's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's just as surprising as a crucified man raising from the dead. It's not simply optimism. Hope is a person. Therefore, for our series and what we're talking about over the course of December, the goal is not to simply highlight the four attributes of hope, peace, love, and joy. The goal is to look to the source. Why do I hope? Why do I experience peace? Why is love and joy a possibility within my experience of the reality of life? We're exploring who Jesus is. At Advent at its core is about Jesus being the messianic king that we're waiting for, leading us to this question. When it comes to hope, what kind of king is Jesus? And what does it mean to be part of his kingdom? Why should I hope? With those questions in mind, we're going to read a passage out of Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. Jesus has just spent 40 days in the wilderness experiencing deprivation of, of food and water, but also experiencing the temptation of the enemy. He hasn't begun his ministry yet. Baptism's taken place. He's wandered in the wilderness for 40 days, experienced a temptation. And now, in, here in chapter 4, we see the ministry of Jesus begin. And the first words of Jesus' ministry is in many ways a response to this question of what kind of king is Jesus. So this is what we're going to read in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. It says, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. And Jesus read, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And Jesus began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask in this morning, in this space, that the longings that our heart holds would find you. That we would discover hope as a real tangible thing for us to carry each and every day rather than just a nice idea. And let it be founded in more than general optimism, but let it be found in a revelation of who you are. Open our eyes, open our ears, help us to sense your presence working in the midst of all that we're part of today. In Jesus' name, amen. So often, the language of a king doesn't really capture our imagination. Maybe if you're into uh, like historical fiction or there's like a, a fantasy lean that you have and kings and queens fall into that context, but not so much into our own. In the Near East culture, for them to hear language of a king would have had a very different way it would have hit. For us, 
Monarchies as a primary form of government in the world saw a decline over the past few centuries by, caused by several factors, the rise of democratic ideals, social and economic change, geopolitical shifts, globalism, the enlightenment, revolutions, world wars, and gradual decolonization that's still taking place. All these different aspects have seen the, this governmental approach of a monarchy kind of dissipate. And in, if there are kings and queens that exist today in our world, in many ways they're just symbolic. What we do understand though, is the possibility held within the hands of those who have power. Within those who have authority. Those within maybe political structures, but even within just our, our economic reality or within even church spaces. We understand that certain positions can lead to authority and power. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when things don't go right, I think to myself, man, if I was in that spot, this is how I would do it. A children's book was released earlier this year, uh, and it's not anything dramatically different than what we've seen before, but it's titled, If I Were King. And it plays out this classic wish of an idea of being granted to a child, leading to the fulfillment of all their desires. In the book, the individual's name is young Thomas, and he says, If I were king, I would be in charge. No more eggs and toast for breakfast, I'd eat cake. And I think we all feel that way sometimes, often like zero calorie, no fat, like that's the way we'll, we'll wish for that to work. But simultaneously, I, I, think, I think well of the way that we would approach things in this room. That you would desire for there to be no homelessness, an end of drug addiction, permanent ceasefires and peace, water available everywhere, the end of world hunger, family reconciliation, and the list would go on and on and on. And perhaps you've played out scenarios like this in your mind. If I held the authority and the power to do something, this is what I would do, and I would do it in this way. If I were king or queen, this is what I would do. And we approach the brokenness of a situation, the brokenness of our world in this manner because we trust ourselves more than we trust those who hold power around us. Now more than ever, there is a growing disconnect between the idea of trust and the idea of authority. We'll figure that out. <laughs> There's a disconnect between this idea of trust and authority. Some of the assumptions that maybe have been held previously are no longer prevalent. That somehow because someone's in a station, we can trust them. In, in many ways, that script has been flipped. And we see someone in a position of authority and we automatically make an assumption that requires us to be suspicious. And sometimes when we think this way, about the world in which we live, this can be the application that can be put towards our relationship with God. Especially when we start to equate language of kingship or authority or kingdom to God. 
Suddenly my natural suspicion that rises up with a political authority or political figure or a station that I don't really trust is the way that I'm going to naturally approach my relationship with God. And so when I hear that God is king of kings, that Jesus is the king of kings, I feel suspicious rather than hopeful. But the title is not given simply for performatory sake. It's given with real authority. It's given because we're meant to trust in the one who is the king of kings. And not simply to let everything happen simply because he is, but so that in the midst of darkness and trouble and despair, hope could be found. If hope is found in a person, we have to trust the person. If you have felt as if hope is absent, that you have looked around you and you have seen the world and you have actually grown incredibly pessimistic, likened it to realism in fact, and you said, well my optimism hasn't, hasn't gotten me anywhere, why would hope be any different? Well, hope is different. Hope and optimism are not the same thing. Optimism tries to frame a situation in the best possible light to the possible conclusion that I'm hoping towards or moving towards. Hope itself sees the situation that we're in, names it honestly, and declares there is something beyond my situation that I can place my hope in. I don't have to see a turn. I don't have to see a change because I see my God. What kind of king is Jesus? And what does it mean to be part of his kingdom? Both in Jesus' life and in this initial declaration. Remember, in his ministry, this is the first thing that he's saying. In the Gospel of Luke, he's saying to all who would hear him, this is who I am. Today, this word is fulfilled out of Isaiah 61. So we're going to look at... Five ideas around who Jesus is as a king. What kind of king is Jesus? Well, he's unlike the kings that we know. As we mentioned, there was a lead up to this moment in which Jesus is communicating and he's tempted in the desert. And the enemy puts before him the, the kingdoms of this, of this world and power and authority as long as Jesus would bow before the enemy. And Jesus rebukes every approach that would compromise the king that he would choose to be. Sometimes it's hard to have full trust in someone if you don't know who they were before they got the crown. In this moment, Jesus has not begun his ministry, but we see the kind of king that he's going to be. That he's not a king who's self-obsessed. He's not a king who's self-absorbed. He's not a king that just cares about himself. This is a king that's entirely different. This is not like the kings that we know. And this was not like the kings that they knew in this time period. Around this period in which Jesus is teaching and preaching, there was a guy named King Herod, and this was a king who was self-obsessed. Accounts in the Bible and in historical Roman documentation, they paint a really scary picture of the kind of king that he was. He was known that at various points of his life, Herod would kill his children so that he could maintain his crown. The emperor of Rome, Caesar himself, thought poorly of, of Herod and said that it would be better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. 
And probably worst of all, when Herod was on his deathbed and he ordered that the, sta- he ordered that the stadium around them would be filled with people all across the land that were beloved by their communities so that when they died, when he died, he was to kill all those people. Why? Because he knew that others would mourn those individuals. And he wanted there to be weeping and sadness in the land, even if it wasn't for him. This was the king that they knew. A king that was inwardly focused. A king that was about himself, self-absorbed in every way. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm a different kind of king. Different than the kings that you know. Because I'm not about power. I'm not about profit. I'm not about popularity. I'm about people. Because the first thing he says is what kind of king is Jesus? Is one who brings good news to the poor and the oppressed. I don't know if you've paid attention to the varying political campaigns over the last 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. The onset of global communication and media has really transformed the manner in which we see people talk about one another within a political landscape. But we do know that the way the people approach it over and over again is that they, they partner in propaganda, media, smear campaigns. And it's all centered around the exact same thing. That I'm going to say something that is exactly what people want to hear. And I'm going to tell everybody that the other person is doing the exact opposite. One of the assumptions around Jesus' time is that the arrival of the Messiah was exclusively to save the Jewish people. And so if Jesus had come on the scene and made his initial declaration that I've come to bring salvation to Israel and making that his first priority and his first statement, I imagine that his vying for kingship would have actually gotten a lot of support immediately. His campaign manager would have been thrilled. Jesus didn't take that approach though. Jesus actually said something that would have been very countercultural. Sometimes when we read things like caring for the poor and the oppressed, we think to ourselves, well, yeah, that's our natural flow of things. This is how we should be doing it. We have to realize that within our modern landscape, there are these Christian ideals that have permeated throughout culture, especially within the Western world. And they have made it a normalized part of our experience to care for the poor and the oppressed. In the time of Jesus, though, there was a rejection of those individuals. It was a discarding of those individuals. You see that there was a separation of people based upon status. And even though we don't live in a culture here in the West that operates with a caste system, I would contend that much of our structure and our system actually contends for that to be the case. We're used to discarding the poor and the oppressed. And the very first thing that Jesus says is, I've come to bring good news to the poor and the oppressed. I've come to bring good news of great joy that he does with the shepherds in Bethlehem. We'll talk about that in the time to come. But in this moment, this is what he declares for all to hear. If we're going to live Under the authority of Jesus, our treatment of the poor and powerless has to have the same priority and awareness. And I'm not even talking about giving money or time. That's the baseline in many ways. 
I'm speaking of our hearts. And the way that we so quickly discard those who have less. Or we tell a story about their situation without hearing from them themselves. We've all done it. We've seen something take place and we've said, well, I know exactly how they got there. We need to be careful about what the stories we tell about those in those situations. In Jeremiah 22, we find how important this is. Jeremiah defended the cause of the poor and needy and it reads, Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. Jesus is the kind of king who is for the poor and the marginalized are we those people. If we're going to declare someone as our king, we need to bow to the ways of his kingdom. And he's saying the poor and the oppressed are of the utmost priority, not the secondary. The third idea, what kind of king is Jesus, is one who proclaims freedom for prisoners. Why does Jesus say this? As we talk about this idea of hope and the king of kings, the idea of hope is most prevalent and prominent when we are in moments of despair, in moments of loss, in moments of isolation, in moments of feeling trapped or stuck. And a revelation of Jesus as the king of kings matters because it believes in the authority of God to intervene in the midst of darkness. There is something that happens to the way we approach our difficult situations when we have confidence in the character of a person. It's, it's something as simple as a child when Mia is afraid, when someone knocks on the door too hard and she gets startled and she isn't sure what's going on, where does she run? She runs to Dada. Because there's confidence, I'm safe there. I know that he's going to do something about it. I know that I'm going to be okay. And it's such a simple thought, but in many ways, this is where we fall short. We're in the house and everything is falling apart around us. And we don't have confidence that actually Jesus will be the one to set us free. He's more of an ornament in our space rather than the Father and the Son and the Spirit at work in our very being. The prophet Hosea in the Old Testament, he chooses hope when he said that God would turn in Hosea 2 verse 15. He would turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope. Here's what I know to be true. For those of us in this room those watching online, there's many prisons that we find ourselves in. Prisons of our own making, prisons from the evil one, prisons from a larger system that surrounds us. And there's these self-made prisons. And Jesus, he comes to free us from all of them. And the season of Advent is meant to remind us that the kind of freedom that we're longing for is the freedom that comes in the person of Jesus. And for some of us, we can name other prisons that people have done to us and we immediately think to ourselves, well, that's their fault. But we also exist in self-made prisons. There's this quote from D.L. Moody when he says, I have made more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any other man. 
for some of us, we have been deceived to the point of believing that the shame that we've experienced, the guilt that we've carried, the mistakes that we have bore time and time again is the reality that we are simply privy to. And the self-made prisons that we have constructed for ourselves have become the homes that we have just accepted as it is what it is. You can name whatever prison you find yourself stuck in. Addictive behavior, past mistakes, stories and narratives and scripts that you've heard from other people that you've told to yourself. Wherever you have said there is no hope for me, the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus is that he is saying, I've come to set you free. And I have the authority to do so. K.J. Ramsey says, you do not yet know how hope is taking root under the surface of today's sorrows. And the beautiful thing is, freedom isn't simply, I'm released and I fly away. In the context of the story of Jesus, freedom is being set free and then following away. Following Jesus. Here's the paradox of the kingdom of God. The more that we find ourselves as a follower of Jesus, the more that we are a servant to Jesus. And the more we find ourselves as a servant to Jesus, the more we find ourselves free. It almost runs opposite to our understanding of freedom within our basic everyday relations. But this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. And here's why this language is important. In that day, whenever someone conquered another land, they would take prisoners from that land and parade them around, essentially to say, we have the victory. What Paul is using is he's using this image to say, we're in a parade of victory by making ourselves in surrender and submission and servitude to God. That when we're in relationship with Jesus and we're acting and living as servants to him, we're in this procession of victory. That we can have that mentality, we can have that approach that the King of kings, the Lord of lords has won the victory and even in the midst of my trial and my despair, I can find hope because I am following him. Jesus is laying this out from the very beginning for each of us. And this is hard to grasp sometimes because we don't even see the prisons that we're in. We don't see the challenges that we're surrounded by. And it's become so familiar and normal that we just think that's right. The beauty of the story of God is that God is not hindered by our blindness. He actually works with it. He meets us where we're at. And as Jesus proclaims, he says... That I'm the kind of king who recovers sight for the blind. There's this theological concept called divine accommodation. And it's this idea that in the midst of our humanity, we have a limited ability to sometimes receive the truths and the gifts that come from God. Therefore, what we, what we see take place is there are ways in which we do things that God uses despite them being flawed. 
this is all throughout the, the Bible, we can see examples of this. But it's this beautiful picture of who God is. And you might have heard it on a Sunday morning. Maybe you've heard it from other Christians that God meets us where, where we're at. Well, the story of the Bible that we see in this idea of accommodation is God quite literally meets whole people groups where they were at. And he takes flawed desires, uses them for good, and he ultimately transforms them for the better. Like I said, there's a number of different instances in the Bible, but it's also around the idea of kingship. When God delivered the Israelites from the oppressive rule of the Egyptian pharaoh, most nations were ruled by someone at that point. It's clear from the biblical narrative that God wanted Israel to be the exception to this. He wanted Israel to function as this microcosm of humanity and as part of their priestly role to other nations. God wanted to raise up a people that didn't need a human king, that he would be their king. And according to the biblical narrative, this is how it was for the first several hundred years after their deliverance from Egypt. And then throughout the Old Testament, we find that God is commanding his people not to place their trust in human rulers or weapons or armies, but to place their trust in him. Yet, when Israel does get to that place, where they start to think to themselves, well, it's not what I was hoping for. It's not exactly what I looked like. Look at surrounding nations. Look at what they're doing. And you know what they have that we don't? They have a king. And their flawed desire to adopt the practice of a surrounding nation for kingship is used by God. He agrees and he says, okay, you can have a king. But these are the, the different variables that I want you to have that are different than surrounding nations. Needs to be an Israelite, can't acquire many wives, shouldn't have many horses, can, can't accumulate a great deal of wealth. And I don't think you have to look too far in the line of kings of Israel to realize that they didn't follow what God had said. Because if they had simply followed the plan that God laid before them, they would have been set apart. They would have been different. But instead of adopting God's vision for kingship, they adopted the nations around them. They were blind. But here's the beauty. God still meets them where they're at. Human blindness, or blindness in general, isn't seeing nothing, but rather seeing the wrong thing. So if you're saying to yourself, well, I, I, I'm hyper aware, and I look around and I notice everything around me. This is not what Jesus is talking about when he's saying, recovering sight for the blind. We all have blindness. Things that we have given our attention towards and claimed as right without the discernment of the Spirit leading. We make the mistake of asking Jesus, be the king of my life but in the exact way that I've seen the kings around me be that way. Rather than based on who we believe Jesus to be. Jesus is the king who gives us sight, who helps us truly see. And Jesus simply didn't come to give us sight. He came to give us his sight. And what does the sight of Jesus look like? Well, he sees every person, every human being as one made in the image of God. And we can see how society operates when that gets lost. If we look at the situation in Israel and Palestine, 
how quickly people are to take sides in the conversation. When in reality, the grief of God is simply based on this, the fact that lives are being lost. Innocent lives are being lost. And every single one of those individuals are made in the image of God. There is blindness all throughout that situation, all throughout all situations of war that permits violence and compromises the Imagio Dei, the image of God that exists within every individual. Jesus is the kind of king to recover the sight of the blind. And then finally, Jesus is the kind of king that is the fulfillment of the favor of the Lord. What does that phrase mean within our text? In Isaiah 61, we read a message of great hope. We read glorious words of comfort to those who are afflicted in their inward being and in their outward circumstances. And the message promises comfort to the afflicted. When it speaks of the favor of the Lord, it speaks of the time in which comfort and care and the goodness of God will come upon people who are poor, who are oppressed, who are afflicted, who are blind, that all would receive it. And you notice that Jesus says after reading this, that on this day it is fulfilled. That is to say that I'm the one who brings the favor of the Lord to his people. Because that's what a king does, right? The king has the authority and the power to bring change to a people, to a place, to a land, to a culture, to a society. And that's what happens when we begin to invite Jesus to truly be the king of kings. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the king that we need. He's not one who doesn't see the strife and struggle though. This is where Advent comes alive for us. Sometimes when we hear language of king of kings, we think aloof and absent. Well, the story of this king, the story of Jesus, is that in the strife and struggle of humanity, he did not send another to deal with it. God came himself in the incarnation. In Jesus, God not only entered into it, but he was profoundly affected by the limitations of humanity. In Jesus, God became a limited human being, became our sin, became our judgment. And in doing this, Jesus demonstrated that God didn't just want to be the kind of God that was revealed on the cross. That it wasn't just God suddenly becoming this way. But in Jesus, it reveals that God was always this way. That God was always full of compassion. He was always full of forgiveness. That he was always for his people. And that he was going to make a way where there was no way. He was going to bring good news to the poor and the oppressed. He was going to set the captives free. He was going to recover sight to the blind. And he was going to restore what was broken in the world. And he was going to do it himself. This was a king unlike the ones that we know. The one in whom hope can be found because he is faithful to seek and save the lost and promises to do that today. Worship team, you can join me at the front. We love to name aspects of the Christmas season. Hope, peace, love, joy. But let's not get it twisted. Christmas isn't about hope, peace, love, and joy. Christmas is about Jesus. And out of Jesus, we find hope. And out of Jesus, we find peace. Out of Jesus, we find joy. Out of Jesus, we discover real love. 
And when we have an understanding of who Jesus is, I truly believe that's when we begin to place our trust in him and discover all that he offers to us. The opening dialogue, the opening thing that he says in his ministry is the thing that we should be hearing this morning. Wherever you're at, he is a king that offers good news and freedom. So I don't know where you're at this morning, where you feel stuck, where you feel burdened, where you feel discarded, where you feel forgotten. But the good news of who Jesus is is that he is the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords, he's the one above all authority, and he uses that authority to set you free, to offer you hope. Hope is not a guarantee, hope is an invitation. And that's the invitation given to us this morning. That you and I, when we bow to this king, we become citizens of a new kingdom. Philippians 3 verse 20 says, But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. Don't let Jesus just be the king that you know. I wonder if he might actually become a revealed king that you need. Do you trust Jesus to be king? Can he be a king that you pledge loyalties and submission towards? To partner with his heart for the poor, to walk in freedom from bondage, to have sight restored so that you can speak to blindness and see light break through, to live in his fulfillment each day. We've been asking for a king since the beginning of time. And all along, God has been saying, I am more than enough. So we got to ask ourselves this morning, to whom are we bowing? And if I'm bowing to the king that is Jesus, is the way that I'm living in line with the declarations that he makes in this opening dialogue? We don't just think of Jesus as another good human being. We don't think of Jesus as simply a wise teacher. We think of Jesus as the king, the messianic king, the savior that has come to seek and save all who are lost. And we're all lost. Don't point the finger at another. Ask the question of yourself. Where am I bound this morning? Where am I stuck? my thoughts, my habits, my relationships. Where do I need freedom? And with a revelation of who Jesus is, I pray that we could find it. I believe we can find it. We're going to spend some time in worship, on communion. Uh, before we do that, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we, we offer this morning to you in all the different places that we feel bound and stuck and discarded. Thank you that you say those words with us in mind. That there's good news for us to hear. There's freedom to be found. There's sight to be restored.
I pray, Father, that in the midst of our longing for hope, that you would give us the courage to be honest. Father, do something within each of us this morning. Push past those walls that we have, those guards of comfort and intellectualism and self-dependence. I just pray that as we begin this Christmas season, that real hope would be found in you. Real peace would be found in you. Thank you that hope is found in a person. May we discover that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.